Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am your host, Emily. And I'm your other host, Margo. Welcome back. We are very excited today because uh, we are talking about something that I, I think this should come with a disclaimer. Yes. You should have Kleenex ready because inevitably one to three people will die tragically by the end of this episode. But will won't it be a love story to remember? Exactly. As... It might be a walk to remember. Yes. And also Alzheimer's. <laughs> There seem to be a lot of common commonality in these books and movies. Yeah, you know how in Disney movies they always kill off the mom to make everything more tragic? Or any parent, I suppose, right. if you want to think about the Lion King. Yeah. But they just kill off any parent so that the young child has to go through something tragic. Nicholas Sparks is the Disney of doing that to teens. Yes, no, absolutely. As I uh, started taking going through the plot point <clears throat> count of... Is this a Nicholas Sparks movie if I noticed that one of the movies I'm covering uh, covers, I think, five or six of what seem to be common themes in all of these books yes. and movies? Do you fall in love? Check. Check. Do you and your um, romantic interest part ways tragically? Check. Check. Does one of you die? Yes. Check. Estranged, Estranged from your family? family. Yes. yes. Always check, check, check. Romantic relationship that one family disapproves of? Check. The South. Check. Trou- always. Troubled teen. Check. Oh, there's always at least one. There's one in Knights of Rodanthe, and that is arguably geared towards a more middle-aged audience. There's got to be one somewhere, so someone had to have a kid. Someone's child needs to be disgruntled. If not, you need to throw it all away and start over. <laughs> I mean, I'm realizing this now because, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, etc., etc. But um, I didn't do any background research into Nicholas Sparks himself. I just went fucking full ham on a walk to remember. I think mostly because in re- at least in the last year, maybe two years, it has come to light that maybe Nicholas Sparks is not the most tolerant person. 
No shit. Maybe some would even say, quite homophobic or pretty racist-y. I mean, maybe these books and movies should have clued us in on what his ideal world looks When, Emily? Like. In between all of your tears? It's, like, it's basically tragedy porn. It's very fitting, I think, that Mandy Moore is in a walk to remember because that is tragedy porn to end all tragedy porn because now she's in This Is Us. It's like going to prep school for This Is Us college. I mean, and then Ryan Gosling later did Blue Valentine, which would be a hipster oh. a hipster Nicholas Sparks, if you will. Also, um, A Place Beyond the Pines. Also, yes. Nicholas Sparks, estranged from his family. Angsty teenage son. I am telling you, it is artsy Nicholas Sparks. What's his name? <laughs> Something son friance or whatever. Um, I can't. Derek. No. Derek France or some shit like that. About, yeah. Anyway, that and director then, is the indie version of Nicholas Sparks. And whatever this this is us is Dan Fogelberg. That's his name. Fogelman. Yeah, Fogelman. Sorry. Wow. Different. Wow. Very different people. Wow. You've been very. hanging out with Nicholas Sparks recently. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, did you ever? I mean, we will start talking about Nicholas Sparks soon. But I have a quick detour. Did you ever see Dan Fogelman's tragedy porn full length feature? Yes. With Oscar. Oh, you did. Yes. With, with Oscar Olivia Wilde and, and Oscar yes. Isaac. Isaac, who I would have also called Oscar Wilde. If- <laughs> But yes. it was, I didn't watch it per se. I watched the trailer and then I read a review by Dave Holmes. Oh, yeah. Because he did a really funny review of Book of Henry that is essentially the entire plot, but with him narrating his own mental breakdown while watching a movie that makes no fucking sense. Yeah, that movie. So I did. <laughs> so it's just like anytime something good happens to the character, bam, dead. Pregnant wife hit by a fucking bus. Like, yes. that's dark. And then it's followed by the her husband killing himself in his therapist's office. Right. Then it's followed by, meanwhile, this little boy who's living in Spain and growing up. Oh, right. And, like, it's it's bad. I, mean, I forgot there was, like, an immigration storyline right. handled poorly. Well, and, of course, you find out the reason why we've been learning about this one little girl named Dylan and this Because one she was, boy. like, the baby that didn't die that and, was Olivia Wilde and, and Oscar Isaac's child. The little boy right. in Spain who witnessed, by the way, witnesses the girl get hit by the bus because he is in the bus Oh, right, there we go, because, like, his yeah. mom is, like, a, a maid, and they're traveling yeah. back from her job. Yeah. Right, right, yes, 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 yeah, yes, they yes. Yeah, were, like, the dad. They, well, all yeah. of these things are of the same ilk. Yes, yes. But before there was a Fault in Our Stars, or even Five Feet Apart, which was, like, another tween oh, tragedy like romance. boy cancer. Well, yeah, they, like, both have cancer, and they're both in a hospital, and they can't touch each other. They always have to be five feet apart, and, like, I, they're, like... Holding towels, which, by the way, Legion did that in the first season, yeah. and they did it better anyway. So the, what are we even doing here? The final thing I have to mention before we even dive in here is that I think what the, the really the OG when it comes to the love, cancer, all that is love story from the 70s. If not, oh. for, if not for love story and its per- female protagonist, spoiler alert, dying of cancer, I don't think we get a walk to remember the notebook I don't think we get a lot of these these movies, uh, this grief porn, romance, what have you type of film. I think it's it's really love story that was the first one that I can really think of. Okay, I don't believe I made it through all of it because the overarching critique that Nicholas Sparks books and movies get is that it's really kind of like too saccharine and it sometimes it feels like it should just be a lifetime shtick, but. Similar yeah. to Nicholas Sparks, 
it borders on Lifetime, but it's always elevated by the caliber of actors who agree to do it. Right. And Love Story, I will say, is like the from the 1970s, very different and a much better movie than many of these Nicholas Sparks films. But yeah. no. Who's in that? It's Ryan O'Neill and oh. Ali McGraw. Yes. So yes, that Ryan O'Neill. Well, as if there's another one. <laughs> yeah. And so basically they play a couple who meet at Harvard um, in college. She's from a uh, family that's poor. He's from a rich, waspy family. They fall in love and get married against his family's wishes. And they struggle as a couple, and, and but they love each other. And after that, she gets cancer. And, and the quote from that movie that's really famous is, Love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Great. Well, of course, (laughs) we don't get a walk to remember if we don't get Love Story and you don't get a Fault in Our Stars or Five Feet Apart or any of these other ones. Because there's also like a Rachel McAdam one with um, Channing Tatum that I didn't list. Because she doesn't quite die. No. But anyway, it's Dying Light. This is the original coming of age romantic tragedy classic, A Walk to Remember. I saw this in theaters when it was just released at the old downtown Burbank AMC. And it was a packed, sold-out screening at, like, 5 p.m. And it was all girls my age, so it was, like, freshmen in high school, possibly. Yeah, it was January of 2002, so freshmen in high school. I was in eighth grade, yeah. Yeah, and it was all girls that looked like me or around the same age. And then there were, like, a couple, like, chaperoning parents, like, a couple dads having to be a part. Oh, really? I just went with Marianne, and we sat, like, on the edge aisle just thinking, like, we would kind of snark our way through it because we would pretty much watch anything to just, like, get out of the house, which is how we ended up watching I Know Who Killed Me, mostly for the air conditioning. We've seen a lot of movies this way. But we did not expect to be as emotionally destroyed as we both did. And I'll never forget, there was a dad sitting behind us who was with his kids. And he saw us, like, start to cry and sniffle. And he handed us a box of Kleenex that he brought with him. And he was also crying. See, toxic masculinity doesn't have to live. (laughs) I think he also was, like, caught off guard that he was also upset. But I also felt like it was... um, what is it, like a folia de like everybody around you is crying so yeah. you suddenly are like feeling yes, things and yes. you're crying <laughs> anyway a walk to remember stars mandy moore as jamie sullivan shane west as landon carter and it's directed by adam shankman who's best known for hairspray uh i did not realize that he had directed this i was quite surprised because he's also pretty known for doing comedies like he also did uh cheaper ride the dozen two and rock of ages and a couple other things but right after he he did the wedding planner with j-lo and matthew mcconaughey he directed a walk to remember he also did hairspray yeah that's what i said oh sorry i said he was known for doing hairspray at least that's what i know adam shankman from yeah because I really like that version of it. Um, a Walk to Remember is rotten at 27%, but it has a 78% audience score, which to me tracks, because I feel like this movie's fairly beloved. It just crossed its 15-year anniversary a couple of years ago, and there are a lot of pieces about like why everybody always still cries, even when they watch this and they know how it's going to end. But I think it's because A Walk to Remember has everything. It has a hot, rich, rebellious dude, a disapproving pastor father, cancer, obviously, faith-based romance, getting married at 18, uh, shitty high school friends, bad fake Photoshop quote-unquote nudes, falling mm-hmm. in love over the course of a school play, temporary tattoos, Mandy Moore dressing like she's about to raise a barn after school, 
telling someone not to falling fall in love with you and of course teenage bucket lists which inspired like a slew of teenage girls oh in my God. high school to make bucket lists and all of them were incredibly shallow and benign nobody <laughs> had anything worth repeating um and all of our goals were fairly achievable because they were things like get a tattoo because we were all gonna you know thankfully live to 18 and so we could get tattoos <laughs> so there were simple things like go to europe they were again all very attainable um uh, but a walk to remember centers on landon carter he's the rich kid bad boy who hates his dad Sort of like Tokyo Drift in the cold open of the movie, Landon and his crew should have friends trick some random nerd that they're trying to, like, initiate into their friend group, I guess, into their crew by having him jump off of something into what looks like a fucking quarry. Like, you can't tell. It's super dark and it's foggy and they're drunk. And there's also opening credits happening, so it's not fully clear (laughs) what happens. Isn't it open on um, Cannonball by the Breeders? I actually don't remember, even though I rewatched the clip this morning because I really couldn't remember how the movie started. I couldn't remember what got him in trouble. Yeah, yeah. But apparent, obviously and unsurprisingly, this entire scheme goes belly up for lack of a better term and the nerd gets hurt and as they are all freaking out trying to figure out if this kid's okay, security finds them and then he calls for backup and they're cops and because Landon's friends are all asshole, they all ditch him so he's left with this unconscious kid and then Part of the terms of his probation, because, again, he's obviously a rich kid, so getting off without having any sort of repercussion, part of that is he has to do some sort of, like, community service tasks around his high school or else risk getting expelled. So some of his tasks are he has to be a janitor, he has to complete after-school tutoring, and he's also forced to act in the school play, which I think is the most... (laughs) bizarre of the community service punishments i don't therapy margo art therapy i don't even think it's that i think it was like somebody gets hurt and they can't be the lead in the play so they make him do it on top of it yeah it's very much like every high school movie trope that you could possibly think of that takes place in high school it's always somebody gets hurt so we need to force this person to take on this role the last two items on his community service docket are what leads him to spend more time with goody two shoes and cardigan enthusiast jamie sullivan jamie is into books telescopes as i said cardigans being super christiany and of course theater and pastels i think pastels you're I mean, sometimes, but mostly, and especially for, like, the first half of this movie, and I'm sure if you talk to a wardrobe person, they wanted to reflect her happier feeling on the inside, outward, with by wearing more pastel clothes. But in the first half of the movie, she's in, like, khaki. She's in a pair of, like, unflattering denim overalls. Mm. She's in, like, a olive green, like, sack dress. Like, they dress her... Again, this is why I say she looks like she's going to raise a barn later. She's dressed extremely homely. And Mandy Moore was a pop star before this, and although I think brown is her natural hair color, this was the first time I've seen her as a brunette post-candy phase, because yeah. she was better known as a blonde. Yes. And so I felt like the brunette was also to signal like her homeliness, On in addition to like her face basically being under-made-up, to give her like a, a whiff of sickly feeling. So you knew something wasn't quite off, but you thought, oh, maybe it's just because of like her religion or something. <laughs> So Landon, surprise, surprise, sucks in the play, and out of fear of being made fun mercilessly by his shithead friends, who will undoubtedly come to the play and heckle him the whole time, he asks Jamie for help, and Jamie agrees under one famous condition, that he doesn't fall in love with her, which, spoiler, of course he fucking does. This is how (laughs) this movie is going to work. 
So after Jamie tries to talk to Landon publicly at school, he tells her that he prefers if they would be secret friends, which just makes me think of Bob's Burger. <laughs> when Jean just wanted to have a secret love, he's like, shh, it's a secret. <laughs> um, and when he tells her that he would prefer that they be secret friends, she rightfully slams the door in his face and she ignores him until opening night of the play when Landon doesn't totally bomb or suck because there's a montage of him trying to remember his lines. Jamie sings a cover of Switchfoot. Remember Switchfoot? Yeah. Okay, she sings a cover of Switchfoot's song, Only Hope, which I did not realize was their song first. I thought that was her song the whole time. I was today years old. After she sings Only Hope, Landon completely falls for Jamie's angelic voice and improvs a little smooch. Camille sang that song in voice lesson recital when we were in high school. That makes tons of sense because I feel like I spent the next four years hearing the song constantly in choir auditions. Oh, yes. Or theater auditions. People just liked this song. And the soundtrack was a little bit popular. I don't really have a ton of stats on that or anything. But <laughs> I listened to the soundtrack today. And I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely own this. And I definitely have the Notebook CD still in, a, like, a CD case out in front right now. Oh, of course. It's not until Landon's ex-girlfriend, Belinda, which <laughs> it makes me crazy, <laughs> that a woman in 2002 is named Belinda. Who's not in the go-go. I know. <laughs> she attempts to humiliate Jamie by poorly copy-cut-pasting Jamie's face, which is black and white, by the way, on a half-naked body that's in color. <laughs> it tries to pass it off as her nude and then writes some, like, dumbass caption, like, Virgin Mary much. I'm like, what? That's clearly not you. You have nothing to be embarrassed about. This is obviously very stupid. If you're going to draw shade on, like, put shade on someone, like, do it right. I know. Her name's not even Mary. Like, I don't even... I understand you're like, oh, because she's Christian, but I just felt like there's room for, like, a pun to have been had, like... Sullivan's Travels butts. I don't know. But, you know, I'm just spitballing here. They're in the South. You don't know if the local public school's any good. You can't blame this I mean, obviously not. Insulted in Beaufort, North Carolina, they don't prize pun work, apparently. (laughs) Anyway, Landon comes to her rescue and punches his friend in the face. And this is what leads him to ask Jamie out on a date, even though she's not allowed to date. So he goes and talks to her pastor dad, who thinks that he's a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, who's just like a rich, spoiled brat. It's very pretty and pink, but eventually the dad relents. And then they have a series of successful dates based on this bucket list that she tells him about throughout the movie. They stand in two places at once, um, between Virginia and North Carolina. He gets her a star after they have like a cemetery stargazing date, names the star after her, and he gives her a temporary tattoo. This movie is very chase. It is the definition of hashtag wholesome content. They don't kiss officially. I mean, the play notwithstanding until halfway through the movie. And it's coupled with Shane West slash Landon telling Jamie that he loves her. And she doesn't even say that till like way later. And P.S. I'm pretty sure they bang in the book, but it's not until after they're married, though. Anyway, it's so chase that there's like a part where Mandy Moore takes down a part of her Amish dress to expose her shoulder to Shane West to give her a temporary tattoo. And the whole thing is treated like she's flashing him. Like, the way that they both react to her shoulder, like, ooh, Ooh, sexy shoulder. It felt like, you know, Renaissance jokes was like, look at my ankle, it's so sassy. Uh. It was a very strange moment to behold, especially in 2019. Like, 
okay, girl, it's just your shoulder, like, whatever. God, this exam, so this movie, my health teacher in high school, we watched it in class on a movie day, and she was like, see, ladies, you don't need to do whatever in order for a good man to love you, and basically use this as an example of us not having to, uh, you know, put out in order to right, get no. attention. No, we can just wear cardigans and weird side braids and see. Show a shoulder see. once in a while. <laughs> Through just being yourself, you too can have a star named after you. Another, like, hot uh, commodity after this movie swept high school. There were uh, lots of girls getting stars named after them. But albeit it was, like, from their parents and stuff. It wasn't, like, a boyfriend gesture. That was usually reserved for the Build-A-Bear in the mall. So yeah, the that toys. was more common and probably cheaper. Because I think I looked into it once. It was, like, 100 bucks or something. And that's not a lot to, like, an adult. But it's a lot to a teen without a, a job. A $20 teddy bear will be much better. Much better. Anyway, after their series of successful dates, shit gets really sad. <laughs> uh, as they walk down the street after a presumed date and they get, like, a, a weird frosty reception from people on the sidewalk, Landon thinks it's because Jamie feels affected by all of it, but really it's because she tearfully tells him in an alleyway that she's not making plans for her future, which is an incredibly dark thing to say because she's dying of leukemia. She's not responding to treatments anymore. Eventually, she falls, which lands her in the hospital, and we get a nice montage of Landon never leaving her bedside, and later, his estranged, rich cardiologist dad pays for Jamie's hospice care after Landon drives over to his estranged, rich cardiologist dad's house and basically demands him to cure cancer, even though, as I just said, he's a cardiologist. We just hit Nicholas Sparks bingo right there. Death, rich father, estranged father. Mm-hmm. And, and fi- the fix-it monologue. The fix-it monologue. And I think, I don't think it was raining. Exactly. It wasn't raining, but he was crying. So it was raining from his face. Yes. All to a switchfoot soundtrack, nonetheless. Of course. Who else could it be? Anyway, Landon makes a giant telescope while Jamie recovers so that Jamie can see this once-in-a-lifetime comet that's coming. And after the comet passes, Landon asks Jamie to marry him. It's the number one bucket list item on oh, yeah. Jamie's... Must get done before I die list. And it's to get married in the church where her mom grew up. And they do just that. They spend the summer together as newlyweds. And then she dies, albeit off camera. And then we cut to four years later. And Landon is coming to visit his father-in-law because I assume he hasn't remarried since. So Jamie's dad is still his father-in-law. And he is reassured that Jamie's miracle did happen for her. And it was him because he gave her the strength to carry on for a few more years and died peacefully and happily. And then he tells his father-in-law that he's going to med school because his dead wife inspired him to be a better person. And then it ends with Shane West taking a wistful walk as he reflects on his relationship with Jamie Sullivan, the person who died of cancer, who changed his life right before she died. And he says, our love is like the wind. I can't see it, but I can always feel it. This is also how Jamie refers to God slash Jesus earlier in the movie when he asks her how she can believe so blindly even though, you know, she's dying. The movie literally ends on a walk to remember. remember. He walks to remember his dead wife. Are you crying yet? Okay, well, dry your tears because I have like a bunch of like weird facts I want to run through because there are some funny things. Okay, when you watch this movie back now, there is such a fucking ominous tone to some things that are supposed to be lighthearted. Like, there's that scene on the bus in the beginning when, after their first disastrous play run-through, and Jamie asks Landon, like, would it kill you to try harder? And he basically says, yes, it would kill him to try and be good at acting. 
her pastor dad is like very overprotective and you're not quite sure why and it just seems almost like a little creepy but it's mostly because he's scared of her leaving the house and dying Mandy Moore I think is really really good in this movie this is her very first acting performance and it really is what makes the movie work I think the best because you get really emotionally invested in her portrayal of Jamie and the strength of this performance is exactly why I saw how to deal later which <laughs> was not a very good movie that her and Tyler Hilton? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. That movie was one of those, it was sort of like LOL, starring Miley Cyrus, which we're going to talk about last song later. LOL with the emoti- winky con emoticon. Or winky face emoticon, excuse me. Uh, with uh, Demi Moore, too. I just felt like the two movies have a lot of things in common, and they both fail in the same ways, which is like they try to stuff too much shit, and they're both based on books that were like successful, but were a series of books. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. The universe of the movie and also the book takes place in Beaufort, North Carolina, but the movie itself was shot in Wilmington, and it was shooting at the exact same time as Dawson's Creek and the Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. So a lot of the same sets were used in this movie that were used on Dawson's Creek, in particular the school, the hospital, and Landon's house. I've been there because my parents' accountant lived there, so I went there a few times as a kid. It's really pretty, and I was going like during peak Dawson's Creek. Oh, really? So it was like there was, they were selling memorabilia everywhere. Like you could get a Dawson's Creek cast magnet at any boutique in Wilmington at the time. Did you just walk around being like, yes, that also was the spring break where I got my period. And that was like just a whole, just walked to a beach and cried and looked out into the ocean wistfully. Yes. The total shooting days for this movie was 39 days, which is wild. And Mandy Moore could only work 10 hour days because she was a minor while they were filming. The director, Adam Shankman, wanted actors that were actually close to the character's age so they would come off more convincingly as teens. Plus, a lot of this plot would probably fall apart if you were sort of taken out of it and felt like they were too old for the role. But he casted Shane West after seeing him in a teen magazine. John Lizhay, who was the musical supervisor on this movie and also Mandy Moore's manager at the time, instantly wanted Switchfoot's music to be a part of the movie after hearing them, and he later would become Switchfoot's manager. Wow. This movie is what launched Switchfoot into the mainstream because mostly they were known as like a contemporary Christian rock group, but only in San Diego. And when Switchfoot was approached about doing the movie or music for the movie, they didn't know who Mandy Moore was, even though she had several singles on the chart at the time. When Mandy Moore received her star on the Walk of Fame earlier this year, Shane West gave a speech and talked about their time on A Walk to Remember. I'm glad they're still friends. And they then they also did their iconic pose, but in 2019. In the fictional Entourage universe, Vinny Chase has an onset relationship with Mandy Moore that started during A Walk to Remember. <laughs> Which is honestly, like, one of the only good things about Entourage. And this movie's tagline is inspired by a quote from Dolly Parton, which is also said in the movie when Jamie gives Landon her mom's old journal of just like quotes and poetry and she has this Dolly Parton quote that goes like this find out who you are and then do it on purpose but I do find that to be a bit strange as the movie's tagline Mandy Moore won an MTV movie award and a teen choice award for her performance in this movie and her and Shane West also won best movie chemistry at the teen choice awards and they were nominated for a lip lock which I think goes well with the notebook which is the only reason why I mention it And then a couple of things about the book, which I read the book after I saw the movie, which I think is the best order to consume A Walk to Remember, because the book is 
pretty faithfully adapted to the movie with some a couple of key things, which I don't think take away from the movie. It actually makes the movie different from the book, and it's good to enjoy both. And I feel like there aren't, like, dramatic changes to the characters. It's not like suddenly, you know, Mandy Moore's, like, 42 and gets cancer. It's, like, it's mostly still the same. Anyway, the rights to this book were sold to Warner Brothers in 1998 before it was published in 99. It was Sparks' third novel, but second to be adapted to the screen. A Message in a Bottle is the first. The book was inspired by Nicholas Sparks' own sister, who died of cancer at 33 in June of 2000. His sister, just like Jamie, was never popular in school, always wore cardigans. She also carried the Bible around with her a lot. And like Landon and Jamie, never in a thousand years did she think someone would want to marry her. But she met someone in despite of her illness, and he, and he knew that she, this was the number one thing she wanted in life was to get married. They got married, and it made her really happy despite of her sickness. And even though this book is really sad... Spark says that it's the book that he had the most fun writing, mostly because he really enjoyed creating the character of Jamie so much, and I think it also helped him process what was going on with his sister. While the movie is a fairly faithful adaptation of the book, it was updated in the sense that it was in the 50s in the book, but updated to contemporary times for the movie because they were worried that they would alienate their target demo of teens if they made it in the 50s, so they changed it. Sparks and a producer also changed the play in which Landon and Jamie fall in love. In the novel, Jamie's dad wrote a Christmas play that illustrates how he once struggled as a father. The end of the book, even though it's more heavily alluded to that Jamie dies and it's less overt than the movie, like the movie really acknowledges like she passed on, but the book is a little bit more opaque. And their wedding scene is sadder because if memory serves, I'm pretty sure she has to get married in a wheelchair because she's too weak to stand up which I felt led you to believe that the prognosis was not good and that she would probably die in the ambiguous ending. Sparks says that he had written the book knowing that she would die, yet had grown to love Jamie Sullivan and had hoped for a solution that best described his feelings in regards to his sister at that point, which she hadn't passed away at that point, so mainly he just wanted her to live, but he wanted to leave it a little bit ambiguous. And that's It's on a Walk to Remember. So I covered The Notebook, which, uh, spoiler alert, has not aged well at all, and uh, re-watching some of the scenes as a 31-year-old versus a 16-year-old, um, I am it's, deeply disturbed. It's less romantic and more creepy. It's and a cautionary tale now, of what happens in a stalker-like syndrome relationship. When you have like a Stockholm Syndrome stalker situation. Yes. I feel like... It's That's a lot like she's all that. It's a lot like she's all that in the sense that you're like, I have fond memories, and you revisit. You're like, wow, this is deeply problematic yes. because no one accepts this sort of behavior anymore. Yes. and they shouldn't have accepted it then. Exactly, and I'll go into this even more. But first and foremost, uh, this movie was directed by Nick Cassavetes, who, of course, is the son of John Cassavetes, the famous Western director. Truly, um, one of the better gets that they have oh, for, for sure. a Nicholas Sparks adapted for movie. Sure, and I don't know how they snagged him. His mother is Gina Rollins, who, of course, plays older Allie in this movie. Um, of course, he also has gone on to direct Out the Dog. He directed John Q, My Sister's Keeper. Um, a couple of other, I guess, yeah. My Sister's Keeper is based on a Jodie Picoult novel. Um, and then The Other Woman, which is that movie with uh, Cameron Diaz and... Uh, Leslie Mann. And yeah, where they all only have conversations about men constantly. Basically, the negative Bechdel 
score. Like, that's what got out of that movie. Um, but I'm just going to go into the plot, and then I'll talk about some backstory and observations and all that. So we open on a patient in a retirement home. A woman is staring outside. Um, a nice fellow patient who goes by Duke begins to read her a book. And immediately we are brought back to the 1940s in Seabrook Island, South Carolina, where Allie Hamilton, played by Rachel McAdams, is a young, rich Southern belle from Charleston. She's on vacation with her wealthy family and is at the carnival with her friend. There she meets Noah Calhoun, who is, who is played by Ryan Gosling. He's a not-so-rich townie-slash-mill worker, and his friend Finn, played by Kevin Connolly, to bring it back to Entourage. Oh my god, <laughs> there is a crossover universe between the Entourage universe and the Nicholas Sparks cinematic universe. One day we will fully explore that, but that's a few seasons from now. <laughs> She reluctantly goes out on a date with Noah, which we'll talk about later on why that's a problem and why the date itself was a problem. And they have and a... why no is a complete sentence. <laughs> no can very much mean no. They later, of course, have a summer affair that is uh, kind of crazy, stupid love. At the end of said, <laughs> said affair comes... The... Is that foreshadowing? <laughs> Since Ryan Gosling will go yes. on to star yes. in yes. Crazy, crazy Stupid, stupid Love. love. The end of said affair comes when he takes her to an abandoned house because that's what one does. Oh my god! Yeah, because you know what teenagers days. love fucking in abandoned houses. Did that so often in my time. He hopes to one day buy that house for her, and right before they're about to have sex for the first time, Finn Kevin Connolly E storms in, <laughs> saying Allie's parents have the police looking for her. And when she goes back home, she is banned by her mom from ever seeing Noah again. And she goes off to college, and in the midst of that, while she's leaving, tells uh, Finn to tell Noah that she loves him. Noah runs back to the house to try to tell her in time. She's already left. The house is boarded up for the season. So Noah then proceeds, because this is a great uh, example of what one does when love is not received, or is when love is unrequited. Noah proceeds to write her a daily letter for 365 days, but they are all intercepted by Allie's mother. So okay, I think, sorry, quick aside, I think writing letters, writing a correspondence is also a Nicholas Sparks bingo square. Oh, Because yes. there's that in Knights and Rodanthe, too. Yes. There, there is definitely an epistolary format, or like storytelling done, There's lots of overlap. For as much as he wants to try to differentiate his books, there, there are a lot of common themes and tropes that he himself has created for his own writing. I mean, but he falls into those traps every single like time. It's like Nancy Myers. You don't, you don't really have a is. Nancy Myers without a, a nice kitchen. A nice kitchen, a nice backsplash. A well-fitted turtleneck. A nice older lady actress that you adore in her 60s. Who's in a fierce got, bob. Who has everything going for her, but may not get a second chance I think love. we really do need to create some bingo squares for Nancy Myers and Nicholas Sparks. How much fun would that be? And maybe a couple others. Maybe some Spice Girls. I don't know. We should look back at old episodes and we create should, bingo squares. We should definitely do that. Or at least so, a drinking game. So Noah proceeds to write her a letter for 365 days, but they are all intercepted by Allie's mother. Right. So she has no idea. Meanwhile, he, Finn, enlists in the army because it's World War II, and Finn dies in action. So goodbye, E. <laughs> R.I.P.E. <laughs> Meanwhile, Allie volunteers at a wounded soldier's hospital and tends to an injured soldier who later James comes, Marsden. Who later comes to her college and asks her out, and his name is Lon Hammond. He's his, very, na his name is Mar His name is James Marsden, and he will always be second fiddle. He will always be second fiddle, but God damn it, 
he's got a good smile. He's a lawyer who comes from old Southern money, so of course her parents are all too pleased that they are together. They get engaged, and meanwhile, Noah comes home from war, and his dad, played by Sam Shepard, hello. What a great get. I oh guarantee you, Sam Shepard and on, just on the strength of Nick Cassavetes, it only makes sense. Totally. And Gina. Rollins. Of course. He dies shortly thereafter, unfortunately. But he sells he is sell, he sold a family house so Noah can buy his dream abandoned house. Cause that's cool. Noah happens to see Allie and Lon from afar when he's up in Charleston doing business, convinces himself that if he builds this house, this abandoned house with everything Allie wanted, including the wraparound porch and a place where she can paint, because that's all that basic bitch wants. She'll come back to him. More on how that's problematic later. Allie, when shopping for a wedding dress to get married to Lon, James Marsden, sees a photo of Noah in the new local paper, of course, in the house, because, you know, everything has to happen at once. And she begins to have second doubts we about We don't have time, Emily. They're going to die soon. <laughs> she begins to have second doubts about the wedding. She tells Lon that she's going to go take a little trip. So she goes oh, back. Oh, right. Deception. <laughs> Deception. She goes back to Seabrook Island and the house to go see Noah and later rekindles her relationship with Noah when it's found out that he wrote to her for a whole year and she never oh, right. got yeah, any yeah, yeah. of the letters. I and mean, they the fucked, rain right? They rain kiss followed by the fuck. They fucked. Yes. <laughs> Her mom shows up later to tell Gross, her- Gross, why is your mom so involved in your life? Because we find out that not only did she keep those letters away from her, she too had her own Noah back in her day. They drive up to the twist. mill. Plot twist. They drive up to the mill, and the mom, played by Joan Allen, by the way, who I love, points out- Give me out, that Joan Allen ass. Uh, I need more of it. Points out- her Noah in the distance and says, Oh my that God, I totally forgot. Regret that they didn't end up. Isn't together. he like a real estate agent or something? No, he's a mill worker. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. I was like, he has a tragic job, like no, no, real no. estate agent. <laughs> 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 then Lon shows up. She confesses that she's been shacking up with Noah. And then she leaves Lon for Noah. And it's at this point we cut back to our senior citizens at uh, the retirement home. And we've had a- When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A few back and forth, by the way, where we see Duke talking to his kids. We start to put the pieces together. But then Allie, played by Gina Rollins, old Allie, realizes that he is reading her their love story from her old journal. Because Allie, sad has dementia. Then Duke and Allie are embracing. Allie is like back out of her dementia. She's she's be, she's able to recognize him. She remembers everything. 
and then quickly thereafter goes into a dementia spell and has to be sedated and taken to the hospital. Duke, meanwhile, or Noah, uh, played by James Garner, then has a heart attack, and he ends up in the hospital as well. What a coincidence. Of course. In the middle of the night, he goes and visits Allie's hospital room, and they start talking because she remembers him again. They fall asleep together, and sadly, the next morning, the nurses find them both dead. Yeah. I remember, if a watch to remember was everybody crying, I saw the notebook of my mom, and when that ended, we were both like, ay ay ay, that's dark. <laughs> like, it wasn't sad. We are just like, oh my god. I, How well, sad. <laughs> just more aghast than yours, uh, depressed. Yours truly did cry quite a bit. Because if you don't remember, talking about One Tree Hill in our previous few episodes ago, there's an episode Teen in soaps. which one guy says, oh, shit, she notebooked you, man. Like, they, <laughs> there's a girl, I forget who goes on a date with who, but they go and watch The Notebook, and as a result, get very close and cry together. Uh-huh. And when this guy recounts it to one of his buddies, he's like, oh, shit, she notebooked you, man. Like, to notebook someone is a Became verb. Became a verb, Yeah. That's the plot, some fun facts, and then some reasons on why this movie is very problematic. The rights to this book were bought in 1996 by New Line Cinema, so it took almost a decade to actually make this movie. Jeremy Levin was hired to write the script, and this caught Steven Spielberg's attention. He wanted Noah to originally be played by Tom Cruise. What a weird on choice. What planet? Can you imagine? On what planet? And at that no smiley, foppy hair. Oh my god! That and like, but Cruise, even at that time, even in '96, Cruise is in his mid 30s at this point. I'm pretty sure. Oh like, yeah. He's not like. Were they trying? I mean, I guess there was Jerry Maguire. They were trying to make him into like a romantic lead, but yeah. I don't think that's a good fit. Not at all. So then, eventually, that that falls apart because Spielberg is really busy, and later, Cassavetes is brought on to direct. He, according to Wikipedia, Nick Cassavetes wanted someone unknown and quote-unquote not handsome to play Noah, so he cast Ryan Gosling in this role. In what planet planet is is he not not handsome? handsome? Also, like, he has Jesus abs. Like, no. Ryan Gosling went fucking method with preparation for this movie. Oh, yikes. moved to South Carolina for two months, rode the Ashley River nonstop, and built furniture so he could fully prep for what kind of Nicholas Sparks, like, Daniel Day Lewis. I was like, this feels, no, I'm like, this feels real Shia LaBeouf-y. It doesn't feel like DDL. DDL's not trying to fucking row a boat. That's true. In humid weather. He's that's like true. trying to play a president or get poisoned by mushrooms. That's true. You know, I feel like that's more of like a Shia LaBeouf. You're right. I wouldn't even say De Niro. No. I wouldn't even insult the greats who no. have won Oscars. You're right. It might be a little Shia LaBeouf. Mm-hmm. It's, or Jared Leto. You're like, oh dude, just God. fucking calm down. No, Jared Leto's oh. obnoxious. God, he can go Don't away. you ever... Ever send Viola Davis anything in the mail, you piece of shit. <laughs> Actresses who auditioned for Allie before Rachel McAdams got the role included Jessica Biel, Brit- Britney Spears, okay. Ashley Judd, what? and Reese Witherspoon. Makes, <laughs> that makes that sense. That makes sense, for sure. Ashley Judd? I know, I know. I mean, she's su- she's Southern, but I wouldn't... That she doesn't make well. any sense. She no. as well as older. Like, no, she she's double Jeopardy age. material. But she, like, even, in, again, in the 90s, she was in her 30s. Um, but it was more like a kiss from a spider or whatever, uh, yeah. or kiss the girls. Like she was more she in like was, a thriller she was range, in Yaya not like sisterhood during that time. Oh. Right? that's right after she. Maybe did it was Yaya just because she was in the neighborhood. They're like, hey, you want to be in this other movie where she played young Ellen Bernstein in that movie for a budget of twenty nine million? They made one hundred fifteen million dollars because 
to yourself. I love that because even though the story is set in the South, both our romantic leads are Canadian. Which, which is, is hilarious. Good Rachel McAdams story. She lived in the same neighborhood as my cousin in Toronto at one point. I think she's like a friend of a friend of a friend of my cousin's because that's how people in Canada work. She's very low key. She lived in a really hip neighborhood uh, where there are a lot of fun vintage stores and just kind of kept a low profile and just ran her errands like a normal person. And she is that type in general. I've, I've read many profiles of her where it, they talk about, oh my God, stars they're just like us but she's really really she's cool just canadian lucky. yeah in terms of awards at this one because we talked about teen choice awards with you it was a hit with the teens because i think what really sells this movie because it is deeply problematic is rachel mcadams and ryan gosling's chemistry i mean yes. they obviously end up dating yes. and that's what they're known for the start of their career but yes. i think and a lot of the movie only works because they work so in terms of Teen Choice Awards, they won Choice Movie Drama, Choice Date Movie, Choice Movie Actor Drama, Choice Movie Actress Drama, Choice Movie Breakout Performance Male, Choice Movie Chemistry, Choice Movie Lip Lock, and Choice Movie Love Scene. This is like a Lord of the Rings for Teen Choice Awards. Right? I mean, and then they had that famous MTV kiss that confirmed their relationship where yes. everybody, and myself included, freaked the fuck out oh. that they were officially together. Also, I did not know James Garner was nominated for a SAG Award for this? What? Yes. I guess maybe if you're uh, an established enough actor and you die in a movie, you can get at least a Golden Globe. That's true. That's true. So, some of my observations. I, of course, loved this movie as a teenager. Owned it on DVD and subsequently watched it during many sleepovers where I'd cry my eyes out while eating ice cream. That being said, rewatching it now makes me realize that there are a lot of issues here. There was a great piece in Bustle that was written for the 15th anniversary, written by Sadie Trombetta, and there was a similar piece in USA Today written around the same time that was written by Carly Mollenbaum, and they do a great job breaking down why this movie is problematic, and I agree. Uh, one of them also mentions having several quotes and images on their MySpace page from this movie, which several people at my high school had as well. That was a big MySpace artwork movie that because that was a thing for a while I forgot about that oh so was the if I'm a bird you're a bird and yeah. as somebody who recently got married there are also lots of wedding decor that incorporates that quote and there's a problem if that's what you're going for is your love story inspiration let me tell you Noah displays a lot of behavior that corresponds to toxic relationship and what is textbook stalking from the start, he won't stop asking her out, even after she says no at this carnival. Again, Nicholas Spark, trademark there, carnivals are a big thing. Boardwalk, carnivals. I mean, I would say, like, like, idyllic Norman Rockwell Rockwell, upbringing is what he tries to evoke. Southern Norman Rockwell. Something that could have happened in the 1950s or the 1950s. Well, a lot of his movies do take place in the 50s. Like, I think it's so funny that A Walk to Remember, they were scared to place in the 50s because they didn't want to alienate their younger teen audience, but by the time they got to The Notebook, they weren't scared about making it in the 50s. They loved the throwback piece. I mean, I can't tell you how many parties I went to or during Halloween where people dressed up like Allie in the 50s. Yeah, Allie only says yes to Noah for a date after he threatens to throw himself off a Ferris wheel. He's literally dangling on this fucking Ferris wheel. Then, after she has said yes to this really bad date from the start, their first date involves them lying down on the main street of this small town at the one traffic light, watching the light change. And oh, how hilarious. They almost get run over by a car. 
What the hell? That's also not a date. That's not a date. If somebody, some fucking bo- fear bullshit right there. Honestly, if some fucking bozo took me to a fucking stoplight for a date, I would never speak to him never again. Never again. You're like, bye bye. Never seeing you again. Off to college. Okay, I think it's like, because I only recently watched the trailer for this, and by recently, I mean like literally today, because I didn't know this was happening. But have you heard about that show, Ghosted, with Rachel Lindsay from The Bachelorette? No, I have not. Okay, well, the Notebook would. I mean, what's his face Calhoun would be a person on this show ghosted because the whole premise is this person stopped talking to you so now you're telling MTV about it and they're gonna go track down this person to force you to confront them to find out why they ghosted you so it feels really I mean it feels like it's promoting stalking it feels wild like I feel like this should end like cheaters like someone's ended up getting stabbed but Again, that's just unhealthy behavior, and I feel like, you know, if we're going to update the notebook to 2019 times, he would be a person that would go on Ghosted to be like, where the fuck is this bitch? This only I made this house for her. This only gets worse. The Summer Love montage features a bunch of times where they're doing nothing but fighting, and literally, as they're doing this, James Garner reading from the journal is like, and they rarely agreed on anything, so they're fighting half the time, and when they're not fighting, they're making out. It looks like something out of Big Little Lies with Nicole Kidman and Alexander (laughs) Skarsgård, except he's not throwing her around and beating her up. No, but they are throwing things at each other. They're throwing things at each other, and it's just kind of a weird dynamic. Later... After the whole thing It felt real like honeymooners, though. Like, why I oughta... It's just a little, like, too much. Later, after she's forbidden from seeing him and he never hears from her again, he keeps writing to her even though she doesn't respond. Even though she... Again, would be on Ghosted today. Exactly. Even though she probably would have responded had she known these letters had been written and her mom had not hidden them, that is stalkerish behavior. If people do not respond to you, do not continue to persist. (laughs) <laughs> even though he intended to buy this house before they even hooked up in it or attempted to hook up in it, he built the wraparound porch and features she wanted despite not having communicated with him for years. He thinks this is what's going to bring her back. And he, it works, though. It works. So it reinforces, it reinforces like, toxic, toxic masculinity this bullshit. Is where everything that happened with Luke P on this season of The Bachelorette with Hannah. I can attest about 50% of that behavior. Are you trying to, to say that L- Lone is, um, James Marsden is Pilot Pete? I mean, I, I don't know if they fucking a windmill, Lon but... Lon is Tyler. Lon is Tyler. And here's why. Uh, Lon, Lon is, is Tyler, because he's also handsome. He's handsome and a good guy. He's a really good guy who of, who's like, of course you can paint, and of course you can go on this trip to think through shit before we get married. Like, what a nice guy. When he does get mad after he finds out that Allie's been shacking up with Noah this That's, whole time. Not shacking up, she fucking she, cheats on she, him. She cheats on him, so they've been, so they, that she's been cheating with her summer beau from a few years back. He says he wants to hurt Noah, but he thinks through this, and he says he knows that it, that doesn't mean that he gets her in the end if he fights him. That takes a lot of thought and not Especially if it's supposed to be post-World War II. Exactly. Like, (laughs) he has PTSD, probably, and yet he can think through this and say, hey, guess what? I don't need, I'm not going to fight this guy because I know that's not going to give me the outcome that I want. Even through his PTSD, he can tell that he doesn't need to engage in this sort of behavior. If this were the other way around, best believe Noah would have beat Beat the the shit shit out of of him. Oh my god. A dead man. And then we can add Lon to the list of guys who in movies get shafted for what appear to be more charismatic options but are in fact trash humans. Talking about you, Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites, Ben Stiller had some problems, but he was actually a nice boyfriend to Winona Ryder. Ethan Hawke, you were garbage. That is my 
Okay, I reflection on the notebook. Did, did not think that you would loop in reality bites with the notebook, but okay, sure. Well, we're about to talk some more about love via correspondence in the mail with Knights in Rodanthe, baby. <laughs> Are you ready for this shit? It has a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and that's a high one, folks. It is, it that's is a high. high one. If we're having like a director that I don't that I'm not familiar with most of his work and a writer who would go on to write like Dolphin Tale. Oh no, sorry, that was a Walk to Remembers writer. Just kidding. Anyway, it's a Rotten Tomatoes score of thirty percent and fifty two with the audience, so nobody really liked it. I can tell you right now, it is currently streaming as of what is it, August twenty nineteen. It's currently streaming on Netflix. So I did watch it today, and honestly, the cast is crazy. I cannot believe they got this many people to agree to this movie, but I think it's because Nicholas Sparks' adaptations, for better or worse, just make movie, just make money. Like, it's sort of like Medea. Like, I don't know what it is, but it just <laughs> is profitable. So I actually read Knights in Rodanthe in high school because I'm a middle-aged divorcee deep down in my heart. I also, as I've established... Myers I was going to say, I'm like, as I've established earlier today in this episode, I also love Nancy Myers and her kitchens. Can we go shopping at Chico's later? Oh, sure. I would love a pair of sensible shoes, as I've told you. I'm not ready for Rothy's, which is like one of the three ads that I get served on Instagram. But I want something like that. Anyway, after a walk to remember, I wanted to cry, but I didn't want someone who had their whole life ahead of them to tragically die of cancer at the end. So I picked up Knights in Rodanthe, a.k.a. How Stella Got Her Groove Back for White People. Literally, that's what it is. It really fucking is. Southern white people. Oh, Diane Lee and Richard Gere star in this, and they team back up after being in uh, Unfaithful. Unfaithful in 2002, where Diane Lee cheats on him. And also the Cotton Boys Club, I believe, from 1984. I didn't write it down, but I was like, I don't know her, but I believe that this is their third time appearing on screen as a couple. Mm. This movie also stars Mae Whitman. Yes, her. Oh. <laughs> she plays Diane Lane's goth daughter. James Franco is Gear's son who hates him. Chris Maloney is the garbage ex-husband who is begging Diane Lane to take him back. Viola Davis is Lane's entrepreneurial sassy best friend in a very weird wig who lets her clear her head at her beautiful inn on the beach. Basically, Nights in Rodanthe, the Nova might have the Lord of the Rings trifecta of MTV Movie Awards, but <laughs> Knights in Rodanthe has been nominated for an AARP Movies for Grownups Award. So suck on that. And it was robbed, I tell you. Robbed. Basically, Knights in Rodanthe is about attractive middle-aged people who bang in the middle of a hurricane amid their personal and emotional internal hurricanes. <laughs> Diane Lane is getting divorced and her daughter hates her. Richard Gere is fleeing his fancy rich doctor life after he accidentally murders a Rodanthe local in a freak cyst-removing incident. <laughs> this is a podcast miniseries. I'm pretty sure it's like Dr. Death. Is he the doctor from Dr. Death? <laughs> he left a scalpel in her face, but he won't admit it. No, I don't, I don't know. But when he tells Diane Lane earnestly that he killed somebody and it was a freak cyst accident, I was like, okay, I cannot handle this movie right now. Diane Lane plays Adrian, who is looking after Viola Davis's inn in Rodanthe, the northernmost village in the inhabited areas of Hatteras Island in North Carolina. I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. Maybe it's not. The only guest for the weekend is Dr. Paul, who's Richard Gere. He's a surgeon with a very type A personality who arrives with his own emotional baggage. 
throughout the movie, he has these, like, tragic surgery flashbacks. Like, they lead up, right? So, like, we see him, like, sassing a nurse. She's like, oh, are we listening to Miles Davis during this surgery? He's like, no, it's a Chopin day. I'm like, oh, suck a dick, dude. Whatever. <laughs> but as these flashbacks build, they reveal, obviously, more and more the Rodanthe local that he murders, who he's currently being sued by, which is the whole reason why he's in Rodanthe is because... The husband of the dead wife. You can't escape fucking dead wives in Nicholas Sparks novels. They are fucking everywhere. I have a very quick blurb on my other favorite Nicholas Sparks movie, Safe Haven, because that movie is fucking bonkers. Always a fucking dead wife. So many dead wives in this universe. The husband wrote to Dr. Paul, tells him to come to Rodanthe because they want to talk it through. But before he can go and talk to him and have any sort of closure, and in between all of Richard Gere's pensive flashbacks while he's sitting on a beach and staring at the water wistfully, a storm is moving towards the inn, and Paul and Adrian have to put their internal struggles aside to protect this nice inn that Viola Davis has invested in. It's very pretty. It's, like, right on the beach. I think, again, didn't write it down, but I believe that the original owners had to physically move it because of so many hurricanes and shores eroding and, Mm. you know, climate change reasons. That's the thing. Anyway, after they board up the house before this hurricane, they dine together and they share stories, and eventually they, like, make out and, like, bang and stuff. I mean, they give each other, like, advice and shit. Anyway, it all, like, leads up to them banging, honestly. And you knew it was coming. You knew they were going to bang in a hurricane. That's what we've been waiting for. Even though they fall in love over the course of this weekend, and it becomes clear to Adrian that she doesn't want to take Chris Maloney back, which is truly a shame because Chris Maloney is foine. Um, oh and she God, realized yeah. that she's falling for Dr. F- Dr. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> if that's who she's picking over Christopher. Maloney. I know girl, get your head checked. I mean, honestly, I personally don't like Richard Gere. Oh. I think it really does all stem from seeing pretty woman at too young of an age and was just so immediately put off and creeped out by him. And also Jason Alexander, which later would make watching Seinfeld uncomfortable at times. I'm like, you're rapey. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, Richard Gere makes me uncomfortable. Oh, and so anybody I mean, falling in love with him, I'm just sort of like, eh, he's icky. I, I don't know. Understand. I know. I know. He has his issues. But. I don't. Anyway, so they fall in love. But Dr. Paul still, still feels guilt over his son, James Franco, who fucking hates him, who wanted him to go to South America with him for some sort of, like, doctors with all border thing. So instead of staying and falling deeper in love with Diane Lane, he goes to South America to join his son. So while they're apart, Adrian and Paul exchange numerous handwritten letters, and that's how they continued their relationship and fall deeper in love. Yep. And on the night that Adrian and Paul are supposed to reunite, and she is going to leave to meet him at the airport, he just isn't there. He just never shows up. And Adrian calls the airline, which honestly is the biggest testament of her love, because I would never call a fucking airline for literally anything. She calls to find out if Paul even made this flight because it's so unlike him. He sends her all these letters, like, where is he? And then, knock, 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 there's the son, James Franco, who comes to tell her that Dr. Paul actually died in a freak flood that happened in Ecuador right the day that he was supposed to leave. Of course. But he brings her this, like, steel chest full of his stuff. And so she opens it, and she finds his last letter to her, and she completely falls apart and then falls into a deep depression. But luckily for her... May Whitman, Mayo, a.k.a. Egg, is there to pull her mom out of her deep, dark depression. Now that she's come around on the fact that her mom and her dad are not going to get back together, she accepts this and has chilled out a bit and has stopped being goth and angry and tells her mom that she's, you know, going to be okay and she's going to find love and she'll always be there for her and yada, yada, yada. And the movie ends with Adrian taking a seaside grief walk. Suddenly, a smile spreads across her face. Is she dead? 
did Dr. Paul fake his own death and now he's showing back up on the beach like, surprise, bitch? No, it's none of that. It's a pack of wild horses because it must be the ghost of Dr. Paul. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> As I said, this movie was nominated in 2009 for an AARP Movies for Grown Ups Award in the category of Best Grown Up Love Story and it did not win. This movie did come out in 2008, though. The story begins in 2002 in the book in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And this book uses the same trope that we're very familiar with in The Notebook, where it starts out with a mom telling a story to her child. And then we flash back, all the way back to the 80s, where Adrian tells her daughter about a relationship that she formed with Paul Flanner, who she met as a younger woman who had just been abandoned by her husband and had to take care of her sick, dying father, and it had all worn her down, so she gets an opportunity to go to the small coastal town of Rodanthe, North Carolina, to take care of her friends in, and there, Adrian meets Dr. Paul, a 54-year-old father who arrives in Rodanthe after he sold his home and his practice, and is now seeking relief from his shattered life as a successful surgeon after somebody dies on his operating table. So it is a pretty faithful adaptation of the book, except there's, like, some of that, like, she was already a parent. She was, like, a single mom, and she had, like, a dying dad back at home. A lot of it is the same. Like, they bang in a hurricane. He mm-hmm. dies tragically in Ecuador. There's They fall in love deeper through the letters. She gets the courage to carry on with her life and, to, like, feel emboldened by her chances and comes back from her little vacation re-energized and ready to take it on. And then he dies tragically, and she feels sad, but then she goes on to have more kids, and she remarries, and it's fine. She's fine. Sometimes now I'm thinking that Nancy Myers movies are made as, like, an antidote to Nicholas Sparks movies, where it's like... They're the comedy equal. You can find love after 50, and you don't have to die immediately. Right, because, I mean, Message in a Bottle is about middle-aged love and dying immediately. So he didn't really quite get into the teen space for a little bit. But you have a teen-centric movie. I do, and this one came after this movie. I think, so he had worked on Knights and Rodanthe, and then I think he worked on The Lucky One. The movie I'm going to talk about is The Last Song, which currently has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it's so apropos since Miley Cyrus and Liam Hemsworth met on the set of this movie and now they're divorcing each other. And also, it comes full circle. Again, we need to map out the old millennial cinematic universe ourselves. But now, the Miley Cyrus... <laughs> <laughs> but now, Miley Cyrus is dating Caitlin Carter of The oh, Hills New yes. Beginnings fame. And as I said earlier, which led to us showing each other pictures of people that we know who look like each other, who are in relationships with people that look like their identical twin... I feel like Caitlyn and Miley Cyrus look a lot alike. They do. In a lot of pictures when they're standing side by side, I have to do a double take because I feel like they look so similar. And I know a lot of it is like they both love hats and they're skinny white blonde women, but there's something about their face too. They do look a lot alike and it is very creepy. It's just a trip. It is. Maybe this is her kind of self-reflection moment in order to like reflect on herself she needs to date someone who looks like herself and who's going through the exact same thing because Brody Jenner and Kristen Carter are also divorcing even though they're not really divorcing because they technically never filed for a marriage license yes which is kind of on brand I mean it is the Vanderpump Rules kids did it it's very on trend right now Yep, Brody was too busy with his once-a-week DJ gig to bother you know it's really hard to drink till 3 a.m. and then remember to mail in a sheet of paper 
So the last song was directed by Julianne Robinson. Her work includes BBC series Blackpool, and she actually won a BAFTA for that. And she directed episodes of Weeds and Grey's Anatomy, and later went on to direct the straight-to-DVD Katherine Heigl movie, One for the Money. Oh, goodness. Yes. Yikes. But good TV work, not so great movie work. So she had a budget of $20 million and they made $90 million at the box office. And this marks the first big, quote-unquote, adult movie Miley Cyrus starred in. This is under uh, Touchstone Pictures, which is uh, Disney's adult branch, if you will. That sounds creepy, but I just mean that <laughs> it's like the... No, it's like what the, the demo is more like 18 and above. Right, and I think Disney now kind of blends that a little bit more now that they have like Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars and all that, but that was, that was for many years Touchstone was that one branch where their uh, older movies were produced. So she met with the Disney exec to discuss her post-Hannah Montana career and what she wanted to do. She expressed that she wanted to be in a movie similar to A Walk to Remember, which had launched Mandy Moore's career from uh, music to acting. And but I feel like the one difference, and we said this before we started recording, was that Mandy Moore had strictly only done yes, music. Miley yes. Cyrus also, she was a Disney right. kid. So I, yeah. she was trying to like break out in the same way that like Lindsay Lohan did. You're, you're absolutely right. So it was more into serious acting. Yeah. And, and Mandy Moore, I think, maybe had done Princess Diaries at that point, but that's a very small role. Or, um, I mean, I think her best role ever is saved i think that's her absolute best role which i was gonna bring up when you were talking about a walk to remember she basically parodies that christian girl stereotype and and what it ends up being oftentimes not to say there are wonderful christian people out there but there are oftentimes many people who resemble the mandy moore character and saved more than the mandy moore character in a walk to remember that is a very astute way of putting it So anyway, they, Disney calls Adam Shankman, director of A Walk to Remember, asks him to come on to produce whatever this Miley Cyrus vehicle will be. Makes and sense since he has music and musical background, exactly. and she does too. Exactly. And he brings his pr- producing partner, Jennifer Gig- Gibgott, I apologize if I mispronounced that, and Tish Cyrus, Miley's mom, is an executive producer. Nicholas Sparks, meanwhile, was just finishing up The Lucky One and was trying to figure out what his next book was going to be about. They call him, and he doesn't have anything lying around, but that's what prompts him to write the last song. And what's interesting about this movie is the script was written before the book. So they were written sort of concurrently. Exactly. Um, and to film this movie, Miley Cyrus's contract for the last season of Hannah Montana had to include an extra long hiatus. Miley Cyrus plays a child music prodigy named Ronnie Miller, who's estranged from her musician father, Steve Miller. Bingo. Not, not that Steve Miller. <laughs> not Steve Miller band fam. Played by Greg Kinnear. Who lives, also a great get. Also lives in Tybee Island, Georgia, because everyone in these movies and books lives on an island in the South. Because that's sustainable. That's totally sustainable. This is where he grew up. She, meanwhile, lives in New York with her mom, played by Kelly Preston, and her little brother, Jonah. She is a quote-unquote trouble teen who's got a record and, according to her mom, quote, only has friends who have pierced something. She barely graduated high school, but somehow got into Juilliard without auditioning because apparently, quote, they've been watching her since she was a kid. I'm doing a lot of air quotes right now as I'm speaking. I apologize, listeners, that you can't see this. She and her brother go and spend the summer with their dad, and of course, she's pissed at her dad for leaving the family, so things don't go great in the beginning. Meanwhile, we see that she was a piano prodigy. There were newspaper clippings of when she was seven years old, but she has not really touched the piano since she was 11 when her dad left them. In this small town, we encounter a love interest, Will, played by Liam Hemsworth, who comes from a wealthy family and is a clean-cut, ripped dude. 
Their meet cute involves him running into her while he's playing beach volleyball and her milkshake ends up all over her. She also encounters this fellow troubled teen by the name of Blaze, played by a uh, pre-Mr. Robot Carly Chaykin. She Blaze! <laughs> yes. Yes. She turns down Will's flirty advances to go out, and then they run into each other later on the boardwalk, because Carnival Boardwalk Norman Rockwell, she's with Blaze. She goes off with Blaze and her jerk boyfriend who tries to hit on Ronnie. Blaze thinks that she's flirting with him and later gets her in trouble for shoplifting and doesn't talk to her for a bit because... Everyone has attitude, whatever. Meanwhile, Ronnie rescues... Teens, they just don't understand. Uh. Meanwhile, Ronnie one day, while staying with her dad, rescues some turtle eggs that she finds on the beach, and when she calls the local wildlife uh, police, or I think it's the aquarium, Will is the guy who comes to help and save uh, the eggs. So as this happens, and they start looking after the eggs together, he starts uh, showing up more often to help her, and they strike up a relationship... She and over time, they build trust, and she plays the piano for him and shares that part of her life with him. He tells her that he wants to go to Colombia, but oh, he's Australian. He's, he's probably oh. no. <laughs> he's, is that not a plot point? No. Okay. He's southern, but he's going to all oh, Vanderbilt, where everyone in his family went. So this is kind of like a Zach, like a uh, Freddie, Freddie Prince Jr. Real, she's all she's that all moment. That moment. And, of course, because she's a brunette, um, his mom disapproves of their relationship. Naturally. Of course. Also, a bunch of the people backstory are judgmental of Ronnie's family because the local church where her dad was putting a stained glass window in late, early, <laughs> earlier that summer, he's an artist in many levels, visual and musical, had a major fire, and people suspect that he's the one who caused the fire because he was the last one in that fi- uh, in the church. And he doesn't remember what happened because, spoiler alert, he has cancer and was taking some meds that didn't sit well with him. So it turns out the arsonists were, in fact, Will and his friend who accidentally set the church on fire when they were drunk. And they've been withholding the truth so as to not get in trouble. Later, Ronnie's dad cancer. Ronnie's dad's cancer takes a turn for the worse. <laughs> Ronnie's dad cancer is, is honestly probably more honest than trying to give him a name. <laughs> takes a turn for the worse and will fesses up to him about the fire ronnie's dad tells will and his friend that they should keep it between themselves uh what happened because as he is terminally ill it doesn't matter if his reputation is no good and ronnie of course overhears this conversation and breaks up with will on the spot ronnie decides to stay with her dad while he lives out the rest of his life and takes care of him she starts playing the piano again and when he asks her to finish playing the song that he composed he dies while she's continuing to play it fucking a of course at the funeral where she plays the the last song song is her dead dad as she plays the last song at the funeral she sees will who shows up late so she can really see him and tells him that she's going to juilliard after all he tells her that he's transferring to columbia and they reconcile and they're back together some observations (laughs) this is a movie where our star-crossed lovers met miley and liam R.I.P. <laughs> Would this movie be a Nicholas Sparks movie if the guy didn't have a pickup truck? I believe Shane West drives a Jeep in A Walk to Remember, but that's No, real... he drives a muscle car. Oh, he, do- he drives a muscle car. He drives You're like right. an old Camaro or something with Which... fucking racing stripes on it. Which is a real turn. That's like a, a big departure from Nicholas Sparks because usually the pickup truck is a... I mean, I think muscle car pickup truck i think they're all because or like a fancy sports car because richard gear's character drives like a merc like a fancy mercedes uh, like amg yeah, yeah, yeah. or something 
that Pablo Shriver, who is the dead wife's husband or son, who, like, kicks a giant hole in the side of it, which, by the way, I, like, when I saw him, I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> you always pop up and stuff, unexpectedly. Anyway, so I think having um, a notable car is part of it. You yeah, know, the for, pickup for truck sure. is easily identifiable. It's like, I'm a down-home guy. And because Shane West and Richard Gere are both, like, rich dudes, they have cars that reflect their socioeconomic status. Which Liam Hemsworth's character does not have because it's, like, an old, dirty pickup truck, but he comes from money, so I don't know. Oh, he's like that dude that I went to college with who um, loved to pretend that he was hard from the streets so he drove like a hoopty but his parents were like super rich therapists that gave him everything that's like such a hipster <laughs> trademark from like the late 2000s it truly made me hate him i don't like people who front like that it upsets me for sure <laughs> there is a gratuitous scene in this pickup truck where she sings she will be loved by maroon five no shut that down no. and i'm like thinking there must have been a contract involved in here where miley and tish cyrus were like i get to have a moment where i sing and everyone remembers that i'm miley cyrus and i can sing despite being a piano prodigy in this movie but maroon five though it was very strange and the song came out like five or six years before this movie like it just didn't make Again, gratuitous. What teen is like, yeah, I love Maroon 5. Gratuitous, wow, you have a great voice scene. Um, sure, but she could also just sing Dolly Parton, which would tie into a Walk to Remembers it universe. Was, it ends on a song, uh, the movie ends on a song that is sung by uh, Miley Cyrus, which I believe a Walk to Remember does as well, because it ends on that song Cry by Mandy Moore. Yeah. So, and then uh, the final thing that uh, really bothered me, this movie had little, like, Oh, this is funny. The little brother, man, like he's a little brother. I hate precocious little brothers. I hate him too. From a Teen Choice Awards perspective, this movie won Choice Breakout Star for Liam Hemsworth. Choice movie Hissy Fit, because that's a thing. Choice Love Song, When I Look at You, which I believe is probably that song that plays at the end. And then a couple of American Kids Choice Awards and Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, and a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Actress nomination. Mwah! Italian chef kiss. <laughs> and that is the last song. Well, I initially was going to talk about Safe Haven before I had to switch it to Nights in Rodanthe because Safe Haven was released in, like, 2012. But Safe Haven is my favorite because... <laughs> it should basically be called I love my dead ghost wife who just wants me to be happy with Julianne Huff whose character is going through a J-Lo slash enough type situation I love this movie and I watched it because it was a great episode of how this get made so if you're looking for like a good bad Nicholas Sparks movie that'll just make you laugh and not cry because I'm sure talking about a walk to remember in the notebook has brought up some capital F feelings watch Safe Haven it's pretty good it's a it's a hollering good time and i think it's also on netflix all right well thanks for coming on a walk to remember with us <laughs> i hope you enjoyed this chat about nicholas sparks book adaptations into tween tearjerkers you can follow us on instagram at old millennials pod the, oh. the old millennials pod and we're on facebook now Yes, we are at facebook.com slash theoldmillennialspod so we can have consistency. And you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could rate and review it, that'd be great because it helps other people find this show. And if you want to find us individually on Twitter, you can follow me at 
Margs, she wrote. And I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And until the next deep dive, bye. bye. Newport Beach, the pool house, Captain Oates, Chino, ew. I'm Michelle. I'm Liz. And I'm Ingrid. And we're Let's, Let's Talk, Talk OC. We're the ladies that brought you Tree Hill Talk, and now we are on the West Coast talking about the early 2000s teen drama, The O.C. Join us every Monday as we watch and review each episode. We hope you can join us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.